When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. had a job at UC Berkeley, but they, you know, it's like I'd taken a leave to climb Annapurna. I, t- I kept taking leaves to go mountain climbing. So they finally said, if you're going to take a year off, you have to decide. Do you want to be at UC Berkeley or do you want to walk across the Himalayas? <laughs> so you know what I did. <laughs> so I walked across the Himalayas. Welcome to Bearcat, a podcast for serious women. I'm Amy Westervelt. And I'm Brittany Shute. That was Arlene Bloom you heard from in the intro. Arlene was the first woman to attempt to summit Everest and the first woman to mount an all-woman ascent of Annapurna, one of the world's highest and most dangerous mountains. But bookending that, she started out as a chemist fighting to get flame retardants out of kids' pajamas and went back to that work in her 60s fighting to get toxic chemicals out of a whole bunch of other products. Oh my gosh. Her life is so interesting. I I, want to get to all that, how all of that happened in a minute. But first, I feel like, Amy, we should talk about um, how you ended up interviewing Arlene and why she's such a bear cat. Okay, so I have been an Arlene Bloomstan for like at least 10 years. Uh, Like she I met her ages and ages ago and was like, wow, this lady's amazing. And I thought she was amazing just for her chemistry stuff. And then I realized that she had been this badass mountain climber for like 30 years in between. <laughs> so I've been following her work on the the chemical front for a long time. And then that work actually provided the basis for that big Chicago Tribune series about flame retardants. Oh my gosh. I remember that. It won a Pulitzer. Yeah. Yeah. That was huge. Yeah. Yeah. So right after that, a bunch of profiles of Arlene came out and I'm embarrassed to admit that I had not actually known about all of her mountaineering before then. (laughs) I was just like, wow, this chemist is cool. So I was working on a few stories about chemicals that I wanted to talk to her about anyway. And I asked if we could also talk about the various other paths she's taken in life. She said, sure. And then suggested that we have that conversation while on a hike. Oh my gosh, that's... (laughs) I mean, you and I both love a good hike, but we're probably both about half her age, and I'm guessing it was hard to keep up with her. (laughs) Yeah. It also explains the rustling in that clip. (laughs) Yes. Those are Arlene's walking sticks. And she still really, really blazes a trail. Uh, When I met her in Berkeley, she said we were taking a, quote, easy walk and that she can't really climb like she used to. She's over 70 now. But I was seriously huffing and puffing to keep up with her, which is why you might also hear some heavy breathing on this tape. And like, for sure, it's me, not her. I was raised by these Orthodox Jewish grandparents and my mom and they wouldn't let me like ride horses or go to the beach because it was too dangerous. And so how did I go from Chicago being overprotected to like Annapurna's got the highest fatality rate of any of the high peaks and considered the most dangerous and possibly the most difficult. So like, how did I go from, you know, my childhood to doing that and my science? So wait, how did she get into the mountain climbing thing initially? 
So she actually wrote a book about that. It's called Breaking Trail. She did. Yeah. So Arlene says that her book was basically like a book length exercise in figuring out how she did go from living this kind of protected life as a kid to wanting to scale all of the world's tallest mountains. Um, and the book is awesome. Like if you get a chance to read it, it is a great read. It's super uh, short read. It's fast and it's it's just fascinating because it kind of goes from like 1960 to maybe like... 1990s ish. It's like a really interesting history of her, but it's also a lot of really interesting kind of science and women's history along the way. So there's this great passage I'm going to read for you that's uh, about being at MIT in 1966. And here she writes, my first day at MIT did not go well leaving my dorm where I was one of eight women living among 500 men. I walked across Mass Ave to the classroom building and headed down the very long main hallway. I began searching for my class among the labyrinth of corridors that led to scores of identical rooms labeled with multi-digit numbers. I stood bewildered as serious young men surged past books in their arms and slide rules in their pockets. Excuse me, I stopped a guy I recognized from orientation. Do you know where quantum mechanics is? You're taking 5.73? He raised an eyebrow. QM is a tough class. Looking for a smart husband? Ah! <sighs> yeah. So it goes... Wow. I know. So it goes on like that for a bit where basically every man she comes into contact with makes her and the handful of other women there feel like they completely don't belong. And pretty soon, Arlene is the only woman left in her entire class. Everyone else drops out. What? Yeah. Yeah. She's totally miserable and she misses the mountains. Like she's not loving being in Boston. So she wants to transfer to UC Berkeley. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, fair, right? I know you you know that. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I live in California. I used to live in Boston. I get it. I mean, it's cool. One love, but you know, that, that tracks. <laughs> yeah. So she really wants to transfer to UC Berkeley, but she's missed the application deadline to transfer. And she's feeling like really trapped at MIT at this point. She's working late in the lab and she's sad. And her research advisor, who's like the one man who's been supportive of her and her work, sees her and asks what's wrong. And she just says, I don't belong here. I'm the only woman left in my class and I really miss the mountains. And I want to go to California, but it's too late to transfer to Berkeley. And he goes, hey, maybe I can help. And he just like calls up a pal at Berkeley and like gets off the phone five minutes later and is like, OK, you're in. You can go next year. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, yeah. Wow. So was she worried? But she it's interesting, right? Like, I wonder how worried she was about that, because once you've sort of missed a deadline like that, like she's feeling trapped, like, 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 then what happened? Right, right. So she's okay with staying, you know, the rest of like the next few months to finish out the rest of that year. But then she's really feeling like, oh, maybe I should tough it out at MIT. Like, I'm the only woman left. I can't also like throw in the towel or these guys are going to think they're right. Like, maybe I should stick around you know, and like show these guys what's what. But eventually she comes to this conclusion that she writes in the book and she says, maybe I could show those professors they were wrong about women, but at what price? Which I think is really interesting to think about as a woman, like how often that kind of a decision comes up. I think it comes up a lot. Like we're always, I, I mean, we can speak for ourselves here and say that's happened to us where we sort of have to balance like what's best for us personally, but then also 
like what larger fight are we taking on as advocates of the world we want to live in and like you know advocates of our gender and like gender equity and like i mean these are we can talk about the how the personal is political and how we also even misuse that phrase <laughs> um but i think but I think that's something that that we all encounter, right? Like whether it's in our, you know, domestic situations or our interpersonal relationships, like how are we modeling this thing, like th- this vision that we have of the world, but also just how are we getting through the day? And like, is every decision a struggle? Is it a, is every choice like this larger fight? And sometimes it just, sometimes it can't be, you know, you, you can't do that every time. So I'm assuming she went to California. Yes, she did. She did. She winds up at Berkeley doing a PhD, and then she keeps leaving to go climb mountains. Yes, great. But also mountain climbing, not super friendly to women either. Like she's really stuck in these like, and she's not stuck, but she's like really attracted to these, these difficult pursuits. Yes. She actually, there's a great quote in her book about that too, where she says like, you know, sometimes it's uncomfortable to be a woman who loves chemistry and mountain climbing. (laughs) (laughs) And that unfortunately really hasn't changed. I know. I know. I know. Yeah. She has a really great, I mean, like, great in a terrible way story about what happened when she first started to go on expeditions to do these like really massive mountain climbs. I was a grad student at UC Berkeley and I just passed my qualifying exams and wanted to go on an adventure and one of my lab partners said oh there's an expedition to Denali and I'm gonna go do you want to go and I said great when I get my Passed my qualifying exams. I'll go to Denali. And I wrote for the um, information and it said women can go on the Denali trip at a reduced price as far as base camp to help with the cooking. So I called the guy who was leading the trip and I said, well, I want to go to Denali, but I want to climb it. And he said, well, women aren't physically strong enough or emotionally stable enough to climb mountains like Denali. And I said, well, you know, I was climbing with my friends from Reed and Peru, and we climbed higher than Denali in the Andes. And he said, well, were you the only woman? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, did you really do your share of the leading? And I said, well, no, I probably didn't. But, you know, I thought I participated. He said, oh, you were probably just carried up the mountain. So I realized as long as I climbed with all guys, and in those days most of the climbers were guys, uh, people and maybe even me would question, had I done my share? So I thought, I wonder if we could organize an all-women's team to Denali. And that was a very revolutionary idea back in 1970. So we organized the Denali Damsels. And so the reason people thought women couldn't do it is because they thought women couldn't carry these. saw that big pack we're carrying. But, you know, we could. Wow. So this, this, yeah, no, this, wow. I'm trying not to, I'm trying not to, like, just, just swear forever. Um, But that probably doesn't go over very well with Arlene. No, no, it did not. Yeah, Arlene was really pissed. And it was interesting because like, she wasn't just mad. She was also like, a little bit doubting herself, like maybe the men did carry me up the mountain. So she comes to this conclusion that like, she needs to do all women a sense of these mountains so that she will know that she did it. And that everyone else will know that women are capable of it. Yes. The prove it to yourself to also prove it to everybody else. We yeah, we know about this. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Such a bear cat. Total bear cat. Total bear cat. One of the ultimate bear cats. Um, but she's also still working on her 
PhD in chemistry at this time. Yeah, at UC Berkeley, which is like not an easy <laughs> oh. school. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No big deal. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Within three years of having this phone call with this guy, she mounts the first all woman ascent of Denali. They make it to the summit. You know, they have various struggles along the way, but they make it. So she's like, oh yes. Gosh. And at the same time, she stays on at Berkeley. She gets her PhD. And then as a postdoctoral student there, she's continuing to do more advanced chemistry okay. research. And she keeps climbing mountains, too. Oh, my gosh. And the two are really starting to be at war with each other. Yeah. So in the mid-70s, she and her research partner make this discovery that kids' pajamas are being totally covered in a carcinogenic chemical flame retardant that might also change. DNA. I mean, it's like real bad. (laughs) And then in 1976, she gets an invitation to climb Everest, which is huge because no woman has done it. And of course, she's like spent all these years struggling to get people to like acknowledge that women can climb mountains. And so she feels like she has to make a decision between chemistry and mountain climbing. And then she's like, nah, screw it. I can do both. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. She's like, no, just do it all. That's cool. Yeah, she's incredible. So she publishes this research. She and her lab partner work really hard to promote it and raise awareness. And it works. The chemical gets banned. And she thinks like, okay, great. I've won this big fight. And she's, you know, she's kind of wrapped up a lot of her research and her schoolwork. So she decides that she's going to have what she calls one big adventure. And she plans this crazy trip where she's going to like go to five continents and climb all the biggest mountains. And like, then she's going to come back and do her chemistry, you know. So she goes off on this trip to Everest and she doesn't end up making it to the summit of Everest, but she does end up like just continuing to climb mountains and she mounts the first all women's ascent of Annapurna, which is often described as the world's deadliest mountain. So wait, how then, because you said like not too long ago, like in her 60s, she ends up working in chemistry again. How does that, what's the path back, so to speak? (laughs) Yes. Yes. So here she is talking about that a little bit. And it's funny, I'll tell you the backstory of this story after we listen to her. Uh, In the 70s, we learned that children in America had these chemicals in their bodies. They were cancer-causing. They were banned. Um, They were removed from our kids' pajamas. And I actually didn't think about it. I went off and climbed mountains for a long time. (laughs) And uh, in 2006, discovered that the same trysts that we'd gotten out of Um, children's pajamas in the 70s was back in our furniture. And and indeed, my cat had a disease, hyperthyroid disease, that might be related to the chemicals. We don't know for sure. Yeah, there's this one study saying when there's higher levels in dust in a household, you have uh, higher levels of hyperthyroid disease than cats. Cats do have a very high level in their body because the chemicals are in dust and they lick their fur. So cats do have 10 to 100 times the level of humans. Okay, so Arlene is kind of cagey about this because... It was it was kind of her cat that made her start thinking that maybe these flame retardants were still kicking around like she thought they'd been to- they'd been totally banned and then her cat was having all these issues and she knows from her previous work that like these chemicals end up in um, dust in your house, right? And she knows they're linked to thyroid issues and she knows that like cats get a lot of dust on them because they're licking their paws all the time, right? So um, so that was kind of what prompted her to start looking into it. And because of that, and she because she told that story at like one chemistry society meeting or whatever, the chemical lobby, uh, like the, the industry groups started 
trying to paint this picture of her as this like crazy cat lady. Oh my gosh. Well, yeah. So of course she like isn't sure. Like, like it's such a useful example of something that most people can understand. Like people that have pets, maybe even people that have, you know, kids that roll around on the floor and, you know, like, like I mean, we all sit on furniture and sleep on beds. I mean, we understand this stuff. It's so frustrating that that's then that's used against her, like that she like spots something. Yeah, I'm not saying that very well, but you know what I mean? Totally. So, yeah. So every time she's asked about it, she's always a little bit like, yeah, OK, I had this cat story. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but she still has she still has cats and she still loves them. She's like, whatever. I am a cat lady. I love cats. <laughs> so. Yeah, I was going to say we're cat ladies. We love cats. Cats are great. That's not something we have to be ashamed of. <laughs> Exactly. Right. Right. So she wins out eventually and she gets a ton of people involved in looking at these flame retardants. And she puts together a nonprofit. It's called the Green Science Policy Institute. She brings on other scientists and they work with various other organizations and they get a ton of laws changed. And they really they got flame retardants out of furniture. Wow. But I, there's still there's still another but coming, I'm sure. Yes, totally. Because, of course, these chemicals are used in lots of other products now, too. So Arlene and her organization, the Screen Science Policy Institute, are working on that. They're focused on building insulation and electronics right now, which are two areas where flame retardants are really heavily used. And they're also working on getting other carcinogenic chemicals out of products. So, for example... I talked to her recently about fluorinated chemicals, which is like the thing that she's most obsessed with now. These are things that are used to make clothing waterproof. Um, they they use them on food packaging to make it grease repellent and all that kind of oh. stuff. So wait, is this so if when if you buy new towels and they're not water absorbent, is yes. that a fl- those yes. are fluorinated chemicals that are yes. that are coating those those fibers? Yes, yes, totally. So she's really pushing for this approach to chemicals that she calls the six classes. So she's kind of like, look, we regulate chemicals like one at a time. So with flame retardants, they would pick one chemical that they found to be carcinogenic, and then it would get replaced with like a very close chemical cousin. But then that can be on the market until we get all the evidence to prove that that's also carcinogenic. So she's like, we should just be doing this like... Any chemist knows that a group of chemicals that are all like fairly similar in structure are going to have the same impacts. So like this is a dumb way to do chemical policy. Well, we see. Um, And she's kind of like. Go ahead. No, no, no. I was going to interrupt you and talk about BPA because I think it's a useful example. Oh, yeah, it is exactly like BPA. BPA is a great example. Yeah. So one of the ways that I, I feel like we see this pop up a lot is bisphenol A, which BPA, we know, has been, you know, taken out of all the products that are sold commercially now, or at least most of them. You know, there's just BPA-free stickers everywhere. But isn't it BPS that is the close cousin? That's the, It's basically the same chemical compound. Yeah, it has, it, it's, it's just as toxic, and it's just been replaced. Yep, exactly. Yeah, it's like a very slight change. It has all the same problems. And so you've got all these products that are like BPA-free, but they have this replacement chemical that's just as bad. It's really misleading to consumers, too. That's like a big part of Arlene's kind of push, too, is like, look, like we shouldn't be tricking people into 
buying stuff with toxic chemicals in it. Like if you're going to say chemical industry that these chemicals are fine, then you should at least be forthcoming about it and not try to hide it behind like BPA free or whatever, you know. So the same thing has happened. I mean, that's a public health issue. It's totally a public health issue. Yeah. The same thing has happened with fluorinated chemicals. So there were all these stories about a chemical called PFOA. I'm not going to tell you what that stands for because it's very, very long and complicated, but PFOA, PFOA. Um, It was part of the whole Teflon case. Um, DuPont had a major class action lawsuit about it. It's been proven carcinogenic. Um, And so, of course, same kind of thing. Everyone's like PFOA free um, on everything. And it's been replaced by a similar chemical in a lot of products or a similar batch of chemicals. And you're having all the same problems with those things. So she's kind of really focused on this idea of like, if we can just regulate an entire class, then we get out of this whack-a-mole problem with chemicals and public health. Ten years ago, I would have thought if I could get any job in a chemistry lab, even washing test tubes, I would have been excited. And so to have the opportunity... I just work with so many fantastic scientists and business people and NGO people from all over the world who share this common vision of just a really healthier planet. And, you know, people are passionate about that. They find each other. So we, that's what we do is a lot of convening, coming up with shared things we can do. Because it was like in our meeting that Ikea said, you know, we're going to stop using all, the whole class of fluorinated chemicals, that's not so just awesome. one. And that's kind of what you have to do, because the one that was phased out, you know, which has eight carbons surrounded by fluorine, has been replaced with probably a hundred different ones with six carbons surrounded by fluorine. And the few that have been studied, and they're just as persistent, they also never break down. And the few that have been studied appear to have the same health problems, and so levels of the C8 are going down in water and body fluids, and levels of the C6 are going up, you know, so... You know, the thing I am most looking for, just to tell you, because you know a lot of people, is I am most looking for hiring people who can work with us and learn what we do and continue it. And really people, ideally in their sort of mid-30s to mid-50s, who Uh could really apprentice with us and then take over a big chunk of it. Wow. So, I mean... She's still doing incredible work, and it sounds like there's no end in sight to that. Like, it's not, you know. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. I mean, she's incredibly busy. Like, every time I talk to her, it's like she's constantly traveling. She's constantly having these, like, big meetings with all of these different companies and politicians, and she's really good at getting people to do stuff. Wow. She's very, very... She's really good at like, um, you know, she's actually got a ton of companies that are basically taking this six classes approach already. And like none of them want to talk about it because, of course, what often happens is that (laughs) if a company announces something, then like people critique them for whatever they're not doing. Yeah. Um, Like not like not getting on board with not putting toxic chemicals in products decades ago to begin with. Right, exactly. It's like, like oh, why we're you up already on this doing now? that. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Which, like, okay, fair enough, but they just sure. don't want to deal with it. And Arlene is really good about like not pushing that stuff. She's kind of good at like meeting people where they are and getting them to like do whatever they will do right now. That's and really then, valuable. 
continuing to like push them towards a goal you know um yeah she's very very like she's just very pragmatic about it it's great because you rarely see that someone as passionate as she is and as mission driven who's also extremely pragmatic and i feel like that's the like science and mountain climbing (laughs) stuff in her you know that she's just like you have to have a plan and you have to play the long game and like you know um yeah, it's also it's also such an it's such a thankless approach to to work that is so important and relevant and really like impacts our our health and our safety. It, like for the stuff that she's accomplished, it's amazing that she's not like super super well known. I'm always surprised when people don't know who she is, and it's a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, it's def- I definitely have some bias thinking that every I mean a lot of our friends and colleagues are reporters and a lot of them including you cover the environment a lot yeah and so i just i just sort of assume that everybody knows like not only knows who she is but understands the longevity of her very important and very like influential career yeah (laughs) but no No. it's crazy wow yeah this is a total bearcat story i uh i'm really i'm really glad that you could take a hike with her and uh and 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 bring back an update on what she's up to yeah yeah, I know. I'm kind of the only thing I always come away with after talking to her is that I'm like terrified for the day that she does retire because like, yes, <laughs> she's she's Who's carrying gonna... water for a lot of causes. You know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, as always, if there are uh, listeners who have ideas for other Bearcats that we should be profiling, very serious, accomplished women who you think should be more famous than they are, you should send us a note. We would love to hear from you. We would. We always love feedback on um, individual episodes or the podcast in general. You can email us at hey at bearcatpodcast.com. Mm-hmm. And also, if you have time, please drop us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us find more people who appreciate serious women. It really does. It sounds silly, but it's 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 very useful. It does. It's like the way all the algorithms work. So it does. It helps. Anyway, thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bearcat is produced by me, Amy Westervelt. And me, Brittany Shute. Our original music is produced by David Whited, and illustrations for each episode are drawn by Jennifer Kirkham. You can find us online at bearcatpodcast.com. Bearcat is available in the Apple Podcast Store, Google Play, and Stitcher. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next time. a very good camper and i'm not a very good long-term outdoors person well and i i sweat too much i sweat an incredible amount (laughs) for especially for a woman i feel um